end of our last message undoubtedly for the year on Christmas. So let me read to you the passage about the shepherds from Luke chapter 2 and I'm starting at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. Now, a Christmas or two ago, I read an article in a denominational newspaper and I hasten to say at the outset it was not a Baptist newspaper, it was a different denomination. And it was an article by a young woman and she said, as a child, when she went to Sunday school or school scripture, towards Christmas, of course, everybody told the story of Christmas and they told all the different parts of the story and she said the children would sit there wrapped, listening to all these details and then they were so happy sticking glitter on stars and cotton wool on sheep and acting out the Christmas story. But she said even as a child, it meant nothing to her. She was just very disturbed at the thought of stars and angels and sheep and shepherds and wise men and gold and frankincense and all the rest. What on earth did any of that have to do with the coming to earth of the Son of God? And then when she grew up in her early adulthood, she suddenly realised she didn't have to believe any of it. All she had to believe was that Jesus had come to earth, that that God had taken on human flesh, the Son of God had been born, the Messiah, our Saviour, and she could just let go of all those details of the Christmas story because really they didn't matter. Now, that set me thinking. There are many different parts of the Christmas story. It's not kind of a concerted whole story. We have little snippets here and there and they actually extend over quite a long period of time, probably over at least a couple of years if you go from the very beginning to the end of the story and we just have these little scenes. And so after I read that I thought, well, are those parts of the Christmas story important? Is there any more to them rather than just pretty little manger scenes that we erect in our church or in our homes, pretty little Christmas carols that we sing about our little town of Bethlehem and Silent Night? Are they just children's stories? Are they just legends and myths and stories that have grown up to explain a little bit more about the birth of Jesus or is there any significance to them? Now this morning you understand we don't have time to go into every part of the Christmas story but I'll start you off and your mind might go over all all the rest of it and see what sense you can make. Is there any more to this than just the outline of the facts as we have them? So let's start with the first part of the Christmas story which is the coming of the angel Gabriel to Mary and the announcement that she was to give birth to the Son of God. 
Now, if you wipe out Gabriel, if you take that scene away, how the Mary Dickens would Mary know what was happening? When this girl who'd never known a man, suddenly, this teenage girl suddenly found herself pregnant, like, what's that all about? And even if she had this little hunch, the voice of God sometimes just whispers in our ear. That's how he generally speaks to me. It just comes like a little whisper in my ear. And I know it's the voice of God because it comes out of left field. But for something as important as the fact that Mary was to give birth to the Messiah, the very Son of God, take more than that little quiet voice of God, that little whisper in her ear. She needed to see the angel Gabriel. She needed to experience that conversation with him. Not only to explain to her what was happening, but so... As the various events unfolded and she went through all those difficulties that Graham talked about last week, she could go back to that scene with the angel Gabriel and say, no, this is right. This is what God has said to me through Gabriel, that he has implanted in me his seed and I am to bear his son. Because of all those things that happened over the Christmas time, she needed that reassurance. So I'm very sorry for this lady who didn't like the angels and stars and shepherds and all the rest of it, but we need the angel Gabriel. And furthermore, following on from him, we need the angel who appeared to Joseph in a dream because poor Joseph was bemused. This girl in whom he'd placed all his faith and his love, who had been such a good girl and was to be his wife and he had committed himself to her alone because they'd already had the, the what equates to a wedding ceremony, although they didn't live together for another year or so normally, but they'd already committed themselves to each other. So Joseph needed an angel in a dream as well to explain the situation to him because he wasn't taking on Mary's story. Believe you me, when she told him what had happened, he did not believe a word of it. And you can hardly blame him. Virgin birds are not to a penny. So I'm very sorry again for this lady but we not only need the angel Gabriel but we need the angel who appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now what about that trip to Bethlehem? Why couldn't Jesus just have been born in Nazareth where they came from? And after all that's where they went back to and where he grew up. There's a deep, deep importance to the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If you go forward into the New Testament, into the book of Hebrews, you'll find there that the writer makes a lot out of the fact that Jesus is our sacrifice and our high priest. And the high priest always came from the tribe of Levi. From the very beginning of the law, that's what God said, that the, that tribe would be the tribe that provided all the priestly lines, all the workers in the temple. Anybody to do with worship and sacrifice would come from that tribe. And the writer of the Hebrews is at pains to point out that Jesus did not come from that tribe. He was not a Levite. He came from the tribe of Judah. Now to us, 2,000 years later, looking at the Christmas story, that means nothing. That, that, that just goes completely over our head. 
But for the Jews of the time, the tribe of Judah was where the kings came from. David, their greatest king, was the most important member up to that point who'd ever been born from the tribe of Judah. Judah supplied the line of kings. And so it's very important that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the same place where David was born, because the Jews already had in their mind that the Messiah was to be the son of David. And so how important was that for Jesus to be born in the very place where David was born to emphasise the fact that he came from David's line, he was in that line of kings. But of course he's not just the king of the Jews, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And not only that, but he was to be our sacrifice and our great high priest, not from the tribe of Levi, but the book of Hebrews tells us from a completely new order, something new, a different sacrifice, nothing to do with the old animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. This is so deeply important in the spiritual significance of not just the birth of Jesus but his eventual death, that he was born in Bethlehem. So I'm very sorry for this lady but we have to have Mary and Joseph travelling down to Bethlehem and we have to have Jesus born in Bethlehem. You can't dismiss that from the story. It's extremely important. Now, I'm coming back to the stable. Graham spoke beautifully to us about the stable last Sunday. I'm going to come back to it briefly, but I'm going to lump it together with a couple of other things in a little while, so I haven't forgotten the stable. But let's move to that story that I read, the story of the shepherds and the angel. For years, I wondered, why did the angel go and tell the story to a group of shepherds. Now I've told you this or if you've been in the church at previous Christmases you've heard me tell you this already. But I puzzled over that. Now I know that shepherds were looked down on. They were very poor and they were often quite looked down on by the rest of society. They were almost outcasts. Then quite never satisfied me. I always felt there was something more, there was some other reason because there are other people that the angel could have appeared to. There are other people that could have received that message. Why this group of shepherds? And it dawned on me one day, they were not any old group of shepherds looking after their sheep. And in those days they used to have mixed flocks of sheep and goats. The fact is that they were in the fields outside Bethlehem. Now again to us that just goes whoop, straight over our heads because that's where we'd expect to find sheep in green grassy fields and we know that they had shepherds looking after them. But in those days that's not where you kept your sheep. You did not keep your sheep in green grassy fields. The shepherds took their sheep and goats out into the desert And if we look at the picture of where they had them on the hillsides in the desert, we can see no green whatever. But wherever there was a little bit of dew or moisture between two rocks, there'd be a little bit of grass grow. And so the sheep and goats wandered over ancient tracks along these desert hillsides and that's where shepherds normally kept their sheep. So what is it about this flock of sheep and these shepherds in a green grassy field just outside Bethlehem. They were the most special flock of sheep in the country because these were the ones who were being reared for sacrifice. These were the ones 
who were going to go and become the sacrifices at the temple. And it says they were watching over their flocks by night. My word, they were. These were the most cosseted, spoiled, looked after sheep you could ever imagine because a sheep for sacrifice had to be perfect. You couldn't just bring any old sheep that a wild dog or some wild animal had had a bit of a gnaw of. Your sheep had to be perfect. It had not to be ill, anything wrong with it. And so these sheep were being beautifully cared for. And it struck me, these were the men that the angel appeared to because in a sense God is saying to them, here's your redundancy notice. In 30 years time or so when Jesus grows up, when this baby that's just been born grows up, your jobs are no longer going to be necessary. There won't be any need for any sacrificial sheep. There'll be no more cosseted sheep in this field outside Bethlehem. There'll be no more shepherds staying up at night looking after them. You'll be back out on the hillside with the ordinary sheep because the baby to be born is the saviour. Here we get the word saviour. And the other thing that strikes me that's important, the angel said... It's for all the people. Now, I'm sure that the Jews had the idea that the Messiah would kind of hang out with the religious leaders and the important people of the country. If he was going to lead the people into freedom and lead the army, he'd be up there with all the VIPs. He wouldn't be down with the ordinary humble people. But here comes this message that this baby who has been born is for all the people. Now indeed the angel's message goes further because it means more than the Jewish people but I'm quite sure that the angels didn't grasp that. We'll come back to that one again in a minute too. But at least here's this message. He's not just a religious leader. He's not just a a, a, a general in the army. This is someone for everybody. Everybody, rich and poor, whoever you were in the country, he is to be the saviour for everyone. So I'm very sorry for our lady but we can't do away with the shepherds or the sheep or the angel or the heavenly choir. We've got to have them in the story because to me they are so important. And then you move on to the story of the two old crumbly people in the temple that Jesus met and I've spoken to you about them too so I'm only going to just mention them briefly. But there's more to their story than meets the eye. When Simeon, whose name signifies the law, the first, that, that's a name that's taken from that very first words of the Jewish prayer that was said every day and it just exemplifies everything to do with the law and keeping the law and being obedient to God. And so when Simeon said, now I can go in peace because mine eyes have seen the salvation He's not just talking about an old man dying peacefully. He is saying the law has done its job. The law has brought people to God. It showed them what sin is. It showed people that we need a sacrifice for sin. So we don't need the law anymore. It can die. It can just fade peacefully away. Other old person in the temple who received or who saw Jesus and who praised him was Hannah, whose name means grace. And so there's a deeply significant part of this story that says 
with the birth of Jesus, the, the law, the old way of worshipping and serving God is passing away and here comes a whole new day of grace. Our relationship with God is now by grace through the death of this baby, the Lord Jesus Christ. Deeply, deeply significant meaning for the life and death of Jesus and for us as well. So, sorry for this lady, but we can't do away with Simeon and Hannah either. We've got to have that part of the story. So let's move on to the wise men. Now I know that Graham spoke about the wise men on Christmas Day and I'm very sorry I wasn't here to hear it, but we'll just mention the wise men briefly. Now, there's always mystery surrounding where they came from and who they were. We've got all sorts of theories and people talked about where they came from and all the rest of it. In a sense, it doesn't matter. There's a mystery about who they were and that mystery can stay there because the important thing is they were not Jews from Israel. They were not local people who worshipped in the temple, who offered the sacrifices, who kept the law. They were not local Israelis. They'd come from a mysterious land far away. But Jesus' birth was for them too. This Messiah was not just the Messiah for the Jews. He was the Messiah for, in a sense, all the people who lived in all the rest of the world that was a complete mystery and unknown to the Jews at the time. They knew nothing about England. That was still a mystery. They would have found out about England through the Roman Empire and the countries in Europe and the countries in Southern Africa and the native Indians in North and South America and the Aborigines in Australia. They were all completely unknown. And the wise men, in a sense, with their mysterious origins, kind of represent them. Because this is the baby for everybody. Not just for the Jews, but for the entire world. His life, his death, his resurrection are for us in Australia 2,000 years later, just as much as they were for the Jews in his day. So, sorry lady but we have to have the wise men in the story because they, there is a deeply, deeply spiritual significance in their story. Now, I'm going to lump together the uncomfortable trip that Graham described so beautifully for us with Mary. You know, I cannot imagine whether that trip down from Nazareth to Bethlehem through deserts and, and uncomfortable roads, if you're nine months pregnant... All the ladies who've been nine months pregnant and their husbands who've suffered along with them would have been more uncomfortable to walk that distance or have joggled up and down on the back of a donkey without support for your back for two days. I don't know, but deeply uncomfortable that trip must have been for Mary. We know about the stinking stable in Bethlehem, the last place on earth you would want to give birth to any baby, let alone the Messiah, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. But the story goes on from there. The wise men's story ends with, again, a message from God in a dream to Joseph, warning about King Herod. 
Now, King Herod was a megalomaniac. But we know that people say things. You, you, you have throwaway lines. You often, I don't know how many times I might have said in, in the past about my, you do that once more again and I'll murder you. You know, we, we get so angry and frustrated. We say things we don't mean. But when Herod said, I'll murder you, he meant it. He'd already murdered five members of his own family. So the threat of a baby, when, when Herod had in his mind that he was going to murder any child that might set itself up as king of the Jews in opposition to him, he meant it. And God knew it. God took that threat very, very seriously. And so he warned Joseph. And as I read the scriptures, it sounds to me like Joseph had that warning from God in the middle of the night and he woke up Mary and they packed up their belongings and they left straight away in the middle of that night. That's how it reads to me because it says that they left in the middle of the night. So God took that warning from Herod seriously. Joseph took it seriously. Can you imagine Mary's fear? Having given birth to the Messiah, now here's a threat, a real threat of his life, a threat that God took seriously. His life was threatened. I don't think there's anything worse than having something wrong with your baby, feeling that there's some threat to your baby. You are so helpless. The Christmas story is not all pretty, pretty, Christmas card pictures and Christmas carols that we sing. There were some other deep emotions in that Christmas story. So here we have fear and packing up in a hurry and leaving straight away. And then, of course, landing up as refugees in Egypt, a young couple with a baby in a foreign land. How difficult was that? What on earth must have gone through Mary's mind? What is God doing? I have his son and here we are, refugees in a foreign land. They would not have been poor. They had the gifts that the wise men had brought them so they would have had money but they certainly were not with their family. They were not at home. The future was unknown, uncertain. Such fear, such uncertainty, such doubt. Now, up to this point, I think probably over all the years that I've given and received Christmas cards, I've probably seen a picture on a Christmas card of everything that we've had so far, of the angel Gabriel and the trip down to Bethlehem and the stable and the shepherds and the wise men and even the flight into Egypt. I, I think that we've seen pictures of all of that. You very, very rarely ever hear a mention though of the last part of that story. And I noticed that it appears in very few Christmas carols and we don't sing them. Lullay thou little tiny child, lullay, Herod the king in his raging it goes on. This last part of the story is in some carols, we don't sing them. We don't put the picture on our Christmas card. We don't read the readings very much. But what happened when Herod sent his soldiers out to find the baby Jesus and kill him? 
the baby Jesus or the toddler had been taken to a safe place in Egypt. But the soldiers didn't know who this child was and so they murdered every child, every boy under the age of two in and around Bethlehem. Can you imagine the mothers and the fathers and the families of those children? Why is that horrible, horrible story part of Christmas? I think those things together, the discomfort, the unsanitary stable, the flight to Egypt with the fear, the murder of those boys. And I'll tell you what I see in that. I see a Messiah who was not born in some privileged place, given everything, every opportunity that a child could have, cosseted and cared for and looked after. I see a child born into the circumstances of life with which we are very familiar. We are very familiar with uncomfortable situations. We are very familiar with being in different places where we don't know what's going to happen, we don't know what the future holds. We're very familiar with fear. Fear for ourselves, fear for our children. We know what that feels like. We're very familiar with the loss of perhaps not children but of loved ones. We're very familiar with death and loss and grief. We know what that feels like. And to me, this Christmas story says that when I am suffering something or other, whatever it is, illness or uh, discomfort or something in my circumstances or my family that's, that I know isn't right, when I go to God and I pray about that thing, I bring my prayers through Jesus Christ, I pray in his name and I'm praying in the name of one who has experienced it all. It was all there even when he was just a toddler. The shame of his mother, the unmarried teenage pregnant girl, even that. Whatever it is I bring to God in prayer, I bring my prayers to a God who has experienced it. He's not just sitting up there in heaven looking down with love on me far away, but somebody who knows what it feels like. And to me, that is such an important part of our Christmas story. So I'm sorry lady but we have to have all those parts of the story because they have such a deeply significant meaning spiritually but they also connect our heart with the heart of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son not to just die and rise again for us, but to share our life. To share the good things, the good times, the fun times. But to share those times 
of grief and doubt and fear and shame to know what they felt like. Father, thank you that when we bring our prayers to you, we come to a God who understands exactly how we feel and what's going on. And so, Father, as we leave this time of Christmas for another year, we pray that we'll take this message with us into our new year because, again, none of us knows what this new year holds. But we go forward in confidence, knowing that you know you are there before us. And you who sent your Son will be there with us to hold our hand and to guide us and lead us. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.